This morning, just for this Sunday, we'll be stepping away from the book of Genesis to turn to Mark and look at one of the works of Jesus. If you'd turn to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. As you turn there, you may see that this is a familiar story, though the one that doesn't always get looked at in as great of detail as it could. And you'll see that it's the story of Jesus calming the storm. <coughs> as you turn there with me, please follow along as I read. And then we'll pray and ask the Lord for his help in understanding this passage. Starting in verse 35 of Mark chapter 4. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And, the boat, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, and be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Please pray with me. Almighty Father, we come before you in need of your word, in need of your wisdom. Please give us your spirit at this time that we might comprehend this passage, your word to us this morning, that we might be humbled, reminded of our dependence and our need of you. Do this in the spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we're jumping in just briefly to the book of Mark, you should know a couple things about the book of Mark. Mark is a book of pace. It's a, a book of immediacy. It's a book that marches forward, where it starts essentially with Jesus beginning his Galilean ministry and will very quickly turn to Jesus making it to Jerusalem. And in this passage, Mark chapter 4, we have Jesus in the middle of his Galilean ministry doing miracles, teaching and parables, uh, performing signs. We know that Jesus has already turned water to wine, as recorded in John chapter 2. We know that Jesus has already healed a paralytic. We know that Jesus has done several things to say, you should be asking who I am. You should be wondering what I'm here to do. You should be saying, what kind of person is this? This is no normal man. He must be something other, something greater. No less than a man. Questions should be rising in your mind by Mark chapter 4 and this part of Jesus' ministry. Further, in Mark chapter 1, in verse 1, it says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark makes no uh, effort to hide who Jesus is. He just moves right to it in the very first verse and says, Jesus is the Son of God. Wrestle with that. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who the Old Testament has spoken about for years and years and years, all the way from Adam to Moses, all the way to this passage that we find here. More in Mark chapter 1, verses 15, Jesus says, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, Hey, when I'm here, the kingdom has come with me. As I move forward in time and in space, as I accomplish history unto a certain end of redeeming my people, as I come, so the kingdom comes. In the same way that when a king enters a city or a president enters a city, so that nation arrives with that leader. And Jesus said, as the kingdom comes, we need to get some things fixed. He says, repent and believe 
the gospel. Repent and believe. Recognize who you are in relation to God. Recognize why I came. Understand with the Spirit's help the Old Testament, all that has gone wrong and all that needs to be made right, and know that's what I've come to do. And he says, believe the gospel, the good news of salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you that a summary of this whole passage, these six verses that we read, could be summarized this way. You need to believe. You need to believe in Jesus. And you need to believe certain truths about Jesus. Now, before we get too far, I don't want you thinking I'm putting the onus on you. Just believe. Just believe in your own strength. No. The Bible tells us we need the Spirit. But I am telling you that the Bible says if we don't believe, if we don't have saving faith that's given to us as a gift, we will perish eternally, suffering the wrath of God. And so this passage tells us something of insurmountable importance in the Scriptures the very crux of the gospel. So to illustrate this, I'm going to say that you need to believe in Jesus while you have time. That's point number one. You need to believe in Jesus while you have time. Second, you need to believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. More importantly, you need to believe who this passage says he is this morning. And then you need to see that Jesus, as a result of this, you need to believe that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. And I'll throw in a bonus point for you. You need to believe in Jesus with the gift of the Holy Spirit. As we close, we'll cover that. So first, turn to verse 35. It says, On that day when evening had come. Now, all of you understand that if the sun sets, it probably rose. The sun rises before it sets. So we're coming into a scene where we're in the evening of the day that has proceeded. And you have to ask, what has Jesus been doing all day? Well, we said that Jesus in his Galilean ministry has been performing miracles and pointing to people to who he was, and he's been teaching in parables. Well, Jesus has been doing that very thing here in Mark chapter 4. He's been teaching in parables. He's been teaching in passages like a lamp under a basket and the parable of the seed, right? Familiar stories to anyone who's read a gospel account. And as Jesus has been doing this, if you want to ask what Jesus was like. It says that uh, in verse 36, he gets in the boat just as he was. You have to ask, what does it feel like to have been Jesus teaching all day to people who were hard of hearing, people who were slow to believe, people who didn't recognize that he was the Messiah, his own people who rejected him? If you've ever been to a conference, an all-day conference, for whatever industry, whatever business, whether you're a teacher, or you're in biology, or you're in chemistry, or the sciences, or accounting, whatever it is, you go to an all-day conference, and you sit, and you listen to speaker after speaker after speaker, and hopefully they make sure there are lots of coffee breaks and lots of chances to stand up and get your blood flowing. It's exhausting. But imagine that there's only one teacher for the whole day's conference, and what it's like to teach the people who are trying to catch up to what it is you're teaching him. That was Jesus. Jesus was bringing them the most important message they had ever heard, and they were not understanding it, not comprehending it, not listening with believing ears and believing eyes. And Jesus is just completely wiped. He is ready to crash. He is ready to take rest. My first question for you, I said that the first point that we're going to address is that you, not just, you don't just need to believe, but you have to believe in Jesus while you have time. Do the people that Jesus is teaching on the shore before he gets in the boat have a guarantee that they are sure that they will get to hear the gospel again, see Jesus again, hear from Jesus again, hear the word proclaimed to them again? 
in their finite understanding. You see, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says that the secret things belong to God. That's his unrevealed will. Those are the things that God has set forth to come to pass that we don't know. The future. What will be tomorrow, we don't know. But what the Lord has already revealed to us, that we're responsible for. And so these people who hear the word today have a responsibility to wrestle with it, to say, is this true? Will I submit to it? Because there is no guarantee that they will hear the gospel tomorrow, that they'll see Jesus again before the Lord calls them to account for the lives that they've lived and the sin that stands between them and a righteous and holy God who does judge sin. Genesis 6 says that God's Spirit will not strive with man forever. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. And in Luke 12, in the parable of the rich fool, there's a story of a man who uh, he thinks he's got another day and another day and another day to be made right with the Lord. And as he gains his wealth and builds his empire and grows his life, he builds a smaller barn and then a bigger barn and then a bigger barn to hold all his wealth. And Jesus says, you fool, this day your life is required of you. Right now you thought you had tomorrow, but instead the Lord calls you to account today. That should make us think soberly. What stands between us and God? If it's Christ, if Christ bridges the gap between you and the Lord who judges sin, praise the Lord and rely upon him. But if Christ is not your Lord, if his blood does not cover you, if you're not clothed in his righteousness, woe to you that you would face the full wrath and judgment of God if you do not repent of your sins and be reconciled to him in the work of Christ. The second point we need to cover is that Jesus is who he says he is. And he is who the Word says he is. In fact, John 1.1, 1, 1, the prologue of the book of John, says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's all talking about Jesus. It's saying that Jesus is this Word of God to you. Jesus is these scriptures made alive, the very Word that can uh, breathe life into you by the power of God. Let's look at an aspect of who Jesus is. First, we need to realize that when Jesus was made incarnate, when he took on flesh, he is very man of very man. He is flesh. He took flesh to himself. He's not uh, less than that. He's far more than that. But he is everything that it means to be a man. And I don't mean like a macho man. He's not like the stereotypical man. In the same way that if you think philosophically that uh, what makes a tree a tree? Well, you might say if I'm going to describe a tree, a tree has leaves. A tree has branches. A tree has roots. A tree has a trunk. A tree has, uh, you know, this uh, uh, ability to grow in height and maybe to produce fruit and maybe to flower. And then you look outside and you see this plant that has roots and branches and it has a trunk and maybe it flowers and maybe it has apples on it. And you could pretty fairly conclude that's a tree. Well, when you look at Jesus and you see throughout his life that he needed to sleep and that he needed to weep and that he bled and that he cried and that he needed to eat and that uh, when Daddy and Thomas touched him after, that he had a real body after the resurrection. You see that Jesus is everything it is to be a man. He's everything it is to be human, that he could represent us to God. If you want an evidence of this, in verse 36, it says that Jesus got into the boat just as he was, and when we look at the passage, there's this great storm that arises, this great wind and these great waves. And you know what? The disciples are scared. 
They're with the creator of the universe, and they are scared. They are with their Savior, and they're scared. They're with this person who has been raising the dead and who heals the blind and who heals paralytics and who turns water into wine. There was someone who was something other, and they're completely terrified. But remember, most of the disciples were fishermen. If there was anywhere they should have been most comfortable, it was in a boat on the water. So that tells you something about this storm, that this wasn't just any storm, that the waves were so big that they thought they were going to die. The wind was so great they thought they were going to be blown overboard. And they turned to the only one who isn't freaking out, Jesus, who's asleep on a cushion. You might think of it like this. If you're from the Midwest, if you're from Kansas City, Kansas, maybe Oklahoma, you're familiar with where Tornado Alley is. And in fact, we get tornadoes. And if you're new to the area and you hear a siren going off in the middle of the night, you pop up and you say, what's happening? And maybe your radio plays that emergency signal that splits your ears and you run to your basement and you go to the safest place you can. But if you're from the area, you might get up, see how close the tornado, t- tornado is and figure out if you really need to go to the basement, figure out if you really need to move to a safer place because you're comfortable. But if the tornado is right outside your house, and it's a F5 level tornado, you might go to your basement as quickly as you can. You might be terrified. That's the situation of these disciples. So when they go to him, they're in their place of greatest confidence, and God brings them to their place of greatest fear. Could that be an application for you, that where you are strongest and most comfortable, God might humble you and humble me? He might say, you're a great businessman yet you're in a business conundrum that might devastate the entirety of your savings and the provision for your family as best as you can know and make you rely upon God afresh. Might he say, you're a great parent and the first three kids were so easy and this fourth one just test me again and again and again. Might he make you a great athlete and then take away your ability in athletics for a season so you might turn to God and say, God, my identity wasn't this thing, but it should have been more fully in you that I might have comfort in this difficult season. Lord, help me to trust you. That should be our prayer. In John 11, it says that Jesus wept. In Hebrews 4.15, it says that we have this sympathetic high priest, one who's been tested in every way that it means to be tested as a man, and it says that uh, he can sympathize with our suffering because he knows what it means to die. He knows what it means to be abused and oppressed. He knows what it means to suffer in this life. He knows what it means to have turmoil in his family. His very own family said that he was crazy, said that, hey, Jesus, reel it back in. You're causing too much of a stir. Hey, Jesus, you're claiming to be God. You really shouldn't be doing that. Hey, Jesus, says the Pharisees, we're going to put you to the cross. We want to kill you because of who you are. And you know what? In the Christian life, if you really claim that Jesus is Lord of Lords, and he is your Savior, and you really think he atoned for sins, you may have to suffer as Christ suffered, following in his footsteps as a witness to the world that, yes, I believe this so much that do to me what you will, this is truth of truth from the source of truth itself. That is our call as Christians. And this passage speaks to that. But Jesus is not only man of man. He not only is man in a way that he can represent us to God, even as Adam did in the garden. But Jesus is divine. He is Lord of heaven and earth, our third point. In verse 19, it says, despite this great storm and Jesus being at peace, knowing that he's Lord over it, he is asleep. And it says that he rebukes the wind and the sea. He says to the wind, I rebuke you. And he says to the sea, be still. What happens? 
Creation obeys Christ. Divine. Author of creation with the triune God. Perfect harmony, perfect unity. Jesus is Lord over this earth, Lord over this sea, Lord over your lives, Lord over even sin and Satan himself. Jesus is Lord. Matthew 28 says that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Christ. Psalm 19 says that heavens declare the wonders, the majesty of God. Day to day pours out speech. You look at the world and you say, this Jesus, this triune God made everything that even causes fear in these disciples. So when something, some circumstance arises in your life, whether, whether it be an unexpected hospital visit, whether it be an injury, whether it be catastrophe at work, or a turmoil between you and your parents, or your parents and your children, whatever arises in your life, know that Lord, our Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament and the New, is supreme over all that. He is superintending. And do not think for a moment that one single event in your lives is outside of his reach, outside of his providence, outside of his governing. And take comfort that you are in the hands of your almighty Father. And that if you need evidence that he loves you, look at Jesus who is in this boat, who he sent to die on the cross. All the evidence you need. Yet we struggle to believe, don't we? So we repent. We turn to the Lord and the blood of Christ. And we return again in obedience. This passage refers in some ways back to the sign of Jonah. If you were to turn to places like Matthew 12 and Mark chapter 8, there's a reference where Jesus is doing miracles and then he's not for a little bit and uh, people come to him and they say, hey Jesus, give us a sign. Let us see who you are. Entertain us. Help us to believe. If you're really who you are, prove it. And Jesus says, I'll tell you, for this wicked nation, for these unbelieving hearts, for those of you who refuse to be humbled by the word of God he's already provided to you, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And any good Jew would have known the story of Jonah. He's supposed to go to Nineveh and deliver this message to these pagans. Jonah was a prophet of God. He was a Jew, and he was sent by God to deliver a message to the Assyrian capital, Nineveh, and say, Nineveh, you've been sinning, and you've been an offense to God on his created earth. And Jonah's supposed to say, if you repent, if you humble yourself before God, he will not destroy you. Well, Jonah doesn't want to take that message, and he goes the other way. God ultimately moves him, despite his disobedience, to Nineveh. Nineveh uh, receives that message from Jonah. And guess what? When the city repents, God's wrath turns away from that city. He does not punish them for their sins. He shows them mercy. Sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? Sounds like what God offers in Christ, that if you believe the message he sends, his wrath will be turned away from you. And if you've received that blessing, again, praise the Lord for the gospel provided and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In verse 41, it says that even the disciples, in the best of their ability to attest, they say, the wind and the sea and the sea obey him. So you have all these witnesses in the boat with Jesus, and they're like, what just happened? We all saw it. We all heard Jesus speak. We all saw creation obey him. Who is this? The natural question is, what does this mean, or who does this mean that Jesus is? Someone who does this over creation that raises an eyebrow. That raises a question. Who does it say that Jesus is? It says that he's our Redeemer. Verse 38, the disciples say this. They ask Jesus, while the storm is raging, they say, do you not care that we are perishing? How that must have broken Jesus' heart. 
to know that they still didn't get it. Why did he take on flesh? Why did he come down from heaven above to take on the role of his servant, to bleed, to go to the cross? It was so that they wouldn't perish. They say, do you really love me, Jesus? And he says, I love you so much I came to die for you. You ask if I care that you're perishing? You have no idea what type of wrath and destruction and perishing that you will suffer if I don't come, if I don't do the work I have to do. You see, apart from Christ, we're not reconciled to God. Apart from Christ, we're not counted as righteous in God's sight by the work of Christ. It's in Christ that our sins are forgiven, that we're reconciled to God, that we're counted as righteous in His sight for Christ's sake and Christ alone, by His work and His work alone. Do you not care? Isaiah 53 describes what Jesus was going to endure before he even came to endure it. It says that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus knew that he would have to be the sacrificial lamb to bleed for your sins and to bleed for mine, that the value of his blood might cover the cost of our sins. And the result, a great, Calm. You see, the story of Jonah is a story about this great city Nineveh and these great winds and these great storms and this great prophet, right? And then you get to this passage here and it says, well, there's a great storm and Jesus has authority over this because he is greater. And it says that uh, when he speaks to these issues, the result is a great calm. How greater calm could you need than peace with God who would otherwise judge you? Praise the Lord that he brings peace to our souls and our eternities. That where there would be judgment and wrath, where there would be fire and flame, where there would be pure justice administered to us, Jesus says, I'll take care of that. And he says, let there be peace between my Father and you. Let there be peace so much that you'll even come into our household and never wonder what you have to eat. Never have to wonder about another sickness again. Never have to wonder about sin invading your life, sin tripping you up. He says, I'll take care of all of that. A great peace. So with the storm, so with your opposition to God. That's the crux of John 3.16, isn't it? Christ, uh, God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So lastly, as we start to come to the end of this sermon, you'll see in verse 40, Jesus asked them a question. He says, have you still no faith? In the paralleling passage of Matthew chapter 8, uh, it's recorded, Jesus says, O ye of little faith. There's this idea of degree. The idea here is that they should have had more faith than they were demonstrating based on what they had witnessed. Have you ever heard the saying, where there's smoke, there's fire? Jesus is saying, do you see the smoke of my teaching, how good it is, how reliable it is, how faithful it is? Do you see the smoke of the miracles that I'm performing? Do you see how that points to who I am? If you know your Old Testament, you might be able to look at what I'm doing today and say, this might be the Messiah. Jesus says, do you see how I've calmed the storm, how I've exhibited my divine authority over all of creation, my creation? Jesus says, that should tell you who I am point to me, the fire, the flame from which the smoke is coming. 2 Timothy 2, uh, 2, 2 Timothy 2 speaks about how God relates to us. It says that when we're faithless, God is still faithful. God makes promises and he keeps them despite our sin. So despite the fact that the disciples are still not understanding who Jesus is and what he's accomplishing, the Bible tells us that God will complete his mission anyways so that we might believe, so that we might have faith unto eternal life. 
Psalm 121 says, in fact, God is so great and cares for you so much and nothing escapes his sight that your God, your keeper, he never sleeps. So in one sense, we see Jesus taking on flesh, sleeping, showing his humanity. And in another sense, the disciples are never outside of the reach of his care, never outside of the plan of his redemption for them. And so it is for you. No matter what comes into your life, no matter how crazy or difficult the trials, you are within reach and the plan of your Savior and his purposes for good for your life and for his glory. I'd finish by asking you just a few questions. Have you believed in this Christ as the Bible presents him to us? If you're an unbeliever, believe while you still have time. Repent and turn to God and say, Lord, I have an offense against you. I have an outstanding balance. Let Christ be the one who pays it for me. Let me trust in this offer today. If you're a believer, like the man in Mark chapter 9, he says, as his son is healed, Jesus' miracle for him and for his family, he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. And he cries out with conviction. The truth of who Jesus is and what he can do for him and for his son penetrates his heart. It brings him to, to dependence on the Lord. And you might even speculate that it brings him to sorrow, that he has been so unfaithful, yet the Lord has been so faithful. An application exercise faith. In your daily circumstances say, whatever comes, I still trust in this Lord. Let the truths that are plain carry you through the Christian life. But also be reading the word. Be storing up God's truth in you that you would be prepared for the day of trial, that you would be prepared to be a good witness, a faithful witness, that you would be prepared to explain to your neighbors and your coworkers and your children why it is that you are so calm despite all of the craziness that sin is causing in your life. So I exhort you at the end, believe and hold to the simple and great truth that we can and should believe in the work of the Spirit and that Jesus who this passage teaches us about. Let us pray. Almighty Father, you are great and mighty over heaven and over man, over all of your creation. The angels hearken to your word. Lord, we need you every hour. Lord, I pray that you would humble us this morning by your word, that you would assure us by your word that when you hold on to us, you would never let go, that when you pay our debt of sin in Christ, that our debt of sin has been paid forever. And I pray that would drive us to thanksgiving this morning. It would pray us to humble reliance even as we enter, enter this week. Pray that you would help us to consider the trials you allow into our lives so that we might turn to you and apply these truths even to our circumstances this day. You are mighty and we thank you for Christ. In Christ's name, amen.